Welcome back, friends, philosophers, and fellow authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me Amaya Tenshi, also known as Usagi Tenshi, on all those different social media platforms that she's on. How are you, Amaya? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Um, I had a little bit of a rough sleep after having a couple nights of actually sleeping, so uh, a little a little tired getting toward the end of the day. But I think we will make it through. Um, now. Today, uh, Amaya has so kindly agreed to come on and talk about villainy, the nature of villainy, what makes a villain, and why do people choose evil. Uh, I'm actually really excited to talk about this. Um, I've got a couple of example characters I want to bring up across different mediums, but we'll try and focus on literature. But if we go far in a field, well, this is the Wild Isle podcast for a reason. But before we get into it, it is time to shill. Uh, the first thing that you should know is if you want to be on this podcast, it's totally possible. Uh, if you know me or know of me, have a contact some way I can verify who you are so I'm not inviting someone from the internet to come talk to me for an hour, uh, do so. Uh, you can do that through any of my social media or you can do that on my website, wildislelit.com slash contact. The conversation topics that are still available for the writing cast are delving into the depths. There's talking about theme. Uh, the author spake upon the face of the waters. That's world building and setting. Uh, narrative voice, potence or pretense. That's talking about style and whether or not there's such thing as quality or objectively quality prose. Regression to the mean. It's about the rules of writing, when they help and when they don't. Uh, we've got, say, reader rights versus justified writing. When is the author or the reader in the wrong? This one is close to my heart. I'm really excited to talk about this eventually. Uh, we have Neo Symposium, Eros in Fiction, uh, when and how or not an author should include actual full-out sex scenes in fiction. And if you have a topic that's not on this list that you would like to uh, hear discussed, please recommend it. Again, you can do that on my website, wildisolit.com slash contact. And while you're there, if you are an author and you've got a manuscript that needs, uh, let's say, bulletproofed, uh, that needs to be sharpened, and uh, if you want to develop your style, you can hire me. I am also an editor uh, on my website, uh, wildislit.com slash editing. You can find my Wild Isle style guide page. Check that out if you want to get your manuscript as sharp as possible. And let's say if you want to write with styles reaching both far in a field in time and in place that's where you want to be. And lastly, for myself, uh, if you're interested, I have a novel out right now, Wan Smoke Broken. It's a weird fantasy fiction with a kind of American twist. I always say it's like a reading a Western literary fantasy novel all wrapped up into one. Uh, so check that out. Amaya, before we begin, do you have anything you'd like to shill, any place that people can find you, uh, follow your work, support you? Uh, I only have one book out right now. It's called Dracula's Guest. You can get it through most uh, booksellers. You can even order it through Barnes & Noble. You can find it on Amazon, Goodreads, um, it's uh, iBooks, just lots of different locations. I have a website, which I don't visit very much. I'm going to be getting it back up later, so I'm not going to talk about that right now. However, the sequel to Dracula's Guest will be coming out in June, so that's in a couple of, like, a little more in the week. That one is going to be called Dracula's Match. That will also be available on all the same locations, you know, Amazon, etc. Thank you, Amaya. I've actually read Dracula's Guest. It is quite good. It's very, very fun. Um, it's got a lot of, let's say, um, deep mythological lore interwoven into the setting, which I appreciate very, very much. Amaya is uh, a very, let's say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Conscientious researcher. So you're you're going to get 
let's say, accurate details embedded into a kind of uh, fast-paced, fun story. Um, also, even though uh, Dracula or Vlad's voice is not written this way, I just imagine him with a Romanian uh, accent the whole time, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. All right. I think, uh, well, speaking of Dracula, speaking of villains, even though he's not the, the villain and Dracula's guest, uh, let's, let's shift into it. So, Maya, the first thing we want to do um, is define what is a villain in the first place. So when I say the word villain um, in general and in regard to literature in particular, what comes to mind to you? And my understanding probably for most people is most people think of villain as quote the bad guy, but it tends to be a, you know, it's rolled up antagonist and quote bad guy in one. Um, although I would say that actually an antagonist is a, it's a, I don't want to say a different, but let's say the larger bucket, shall we say, of the role. And villain is like a, a sub, you know, like a, a smaller part of what an antagonist is. A, a villain would be a character that embodies at least one, shall we say, evil, uh, bad, maladaptive, you know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this, uh, concepts, themes, you know, traits, characteristics, um, and usually are in opposition to the protagonist, uh, either in like a large scale as in they are the only antagonist or else they're just one of the several obstacles that the protagonist has to overcome. Yeah, that delineation uh, between, let's say, really villain and antagonist, uh, I think we need to hammer that in before we can even dig deeper, before we, we delve into, you kind of touched on it, uh, villain as let's say, evil or immoral or villain as vicious or viceful, uh, because you can look at it both ways, depending on when and where you are in uh, time and human history, right? But okay, so we've got sure. villain. We, Yeah, uh, we've identified villain as a subcategory of antagonist. And I imagine a lot of listeners are going to know this distinction already, but it's always worth going through. Um, so what really is an antagonist? An antagonist can be a character, or else it can be a force or a circumstance. It's whatever essentially prevents or stops or interferes with the protagonist uh, achieving a goal or completing the narrative. You know, you know. Uh, in the case of Lord of the Rings, to a certain extent, because we're getting into a more mythological sense, because Sauron is not really a character per se; he's almost like a force, and that is more mythological. Um, in the case of Breaking Bad, actually, uh, Skyler. Walter White's wife is the antagonist because she kind of continually doesn't really want him to, you know, become a meth lord. You know, not because she's a villain. She's just, you know, that's her role is to kind of constantly pump the brakes on his villainous arc. Um, you know, in, in Batman, you have a very obvious case of, you know, the Joker uh, and Les Mis. You have, you know, Javert, who is actually a great foil as well as, you know, an antagonist. Um, you could also do another version with, um, you know, Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes. Although Sherlock Holmes is a bunch of different stories, and Moriarty might be like the the most well known. Yeah. So we, uh, what what came to mind as you were listing through the, these different antagonists, and some are evil, some are almost like rivals, some are just pure embodiments of of chaos or destruction, but they're all in opposition. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I, I'm probably diving off a diving board here, but my immediate thought is, okay, so the antagonist necessarily is the opposer but what's yes. interesting about that yeah what's interesting about that is that makes me think uh i'm going to get a bit um archetypal and mythological but i think that shouldn't shouldn't get in the way so when i think of the opposer i think mythologically speaking of 
Satan, right? Because that's what Satan is. Satan is that which opposes. I don't know if that, it probably doesn't translate that way, but that's my that's my general impression. But then my thought there is, okay, well, that's definitely tightly associated with evil. And so there seems to, to be, let's say, maybe this is uh, part of like a Western culture and canon. Uh, actually, I was just reading Nietzsche's Will to Power before we started recording, and he kind of touches on this a little bit. But there has been, perhaps culturally at this time, um, a kind of entangling of the notions of antagonism and evil um, yeah so it sounds like you've got you've got somewhere to jump onto that because I, the question is like why might that be might might that entanglement be there given that Skylar who's not evil in breaking bad arguably um is is an antagonist is in the opposition so you know what's going on there uh, I think for any uh, narrative, right, um, conflict is what makes a narrative work. You know, you can't just tell a story of, you know, uh, once upon a time there's a princess and then she woke up, all her animal friends came by and then she found the love of her life and then they got married and they had beautiful children and nothing bad happened to them ever and then the end. The end. You know, that, that's not a compelling story. You know, <laughs> nothing was learned, nothing was gained, nothing was lost, all of that. All of the parts that, because narrative, of course, um, as far as I can tell, generally speaking, is... is um, how to phrase this, it's almost like an argument, right? It's saying, okay, so given this situation, what do we do? What is What are we learning from this? What is there to take away? What does this say about the nature of uh, reality, the nature of humanity, the nature of, you know, good, evil, all, like, the larger, um, you know, questions? There's there's no point just having a story, for example, where it's literally just a guy and he went to work and he came home and it was just a totally normal day. We don't care. We all live there all the time. Um, so an antagonist is important other, because otherwise you, you have, one, no obstacle to overcome, i.e. You, you have nothing to grow around or above, and also that there are no stakes without an antagonist of some sort. In the case of Odysseus, right, where the, the antagonist is some, a little bit more, it's, it's not a person, it's sort of the situation, um, is basically directly preventing Odysseus from, you know, returning to his home, which is his entire goal. And the longer, of course, that that's delayed, the more, you know, desperate you, the listener, the reader, you know, the audience become thinking to yourself, like, oh my goodness, is he ever going to make it? And then, of course, it makes it so much sweeter when you finally get there. When he finally does get home and, you know, um, he and Penelope have presumably lived happily ever after, all that fun stuff. Um, so, yeah, I would say a story without an antagonist, and it doesn't have to be a person or a character, it could be a force or a circumstance. Without that, you have no narrative. Yeah, uh, there's so much... There's so much to say there. So um, your immediate idea is the story being an argument. Um, I actually have been making a similar case for a long time. Uh, I have an old essay. It's not very good, but it, I think the point it makes is fine. <laughs> that Yeah, right. Uh, but the point it makes is that essentially a theme, I, 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 for those who don't know, distinguish between theme and motif because I find in literary textbooks uh, of all stripes, they fail to do this. In fact, their definitions are uh, horrendous, right? Like my my background in Confucianism, basically being hammered into me through traditional martial arts, it drives me insane. The lack of borders between concepts. But uh, my argument is theme is thesis embedded in narrative. In fact, there's there's essentially no no difference. Like so, it, it, it's exactly what you've just said there. Um, and jumping also on what you've said that conflict is at the heart of let's say, 
it's at the heart of theme. You can't produce a theme fundamentally unless you have a conflict. And the reason for that is, oh, do you have something you want to say? No, I was agreeing. Sorry. No, no, no. It's, all it's right. kind of a uh, I do it to say that I'm listening. <laughs> sorry. All right. So listeners, you'll know that you'll be hearing lots of ohms. That's perfectly fine. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, right. So continuing on with that idea, right? So conflict. Now, what's interesting is you had and I think we we generally have this idea that our life is very different from a narrative. And I actually don't think that it is in a, in a very deep philosophical sense. So, you know, you mentioned like we get up, go to work, come home, everything is fine. It's like, actually, if you if you really pay attention, like that's not true at all. Like you get up and you don't oh, right. want to go to work, but you're... Yeah, our lives are mythological, but it comes down to what you're focusing on, right? Because um, you can obviously focus on the mundane. And at that point, you don't have a narrative, right? You know, and then in that sense, I'd actually argue our lives are like Odysseus. We we want to find the place of rest, the place where we're finally home, where we finally, we're done with the journey, right? We can finally, you know, but most of our lives is it's constant antagonism and it's not, in this sense, consistent villains, right? You don't usually have like one villain in your entire life. You run into one here and one there and antagonist there, but the larger antagonism really ultimately is just <laughs> the vagaries of life. Um... But so sorry, what I was re referencing before is more um, focus, right? Because a story of just I got up, I went to work, etc. Of course, is not focusing on any conflict at all. It's just the mundane stuff. So yeah, like if we if we only describe, you know, you might see this with a like a brand new like brand new author who who doesn't know who hasn't studied anything who doesn't read very much. That would have been like me when I first started. Um, will make errors in trying to, you know, know, knowing what to describe and what not to describe. This is typically, mm -hmm. uh, people people talk about this in terms of like show, don't tell. I like to say summary versus scene because I think it actually yeah. describes what we're talking about. Yeah. And if you're, if you're brand new, uh, sometimes you just describe everything. Everything is seen, including everything that's <laughs> irrelevant. And mm -hmm. That is not for uh, an enticing story make, uh, mostly because we just the reader checks out. They just don't care, right? Um, but mm -hmm. we, we were talking Dickens. about... <laughs> oh, is Charles Dickens guilty of this? A little bit, but he was being paid by the word, so there are reasons why if you're reading him, sometimes he'll just spend three paragraphs describing some freaking minutia, and you're sitting there going, Charles, wh why? I don't care about this man's polar bowler hat. I'm glad he's wearing it, but I don't care. Yeah, that's uh, that's hard to get away with. I've seen certain prose that is, let's say, stylistically worth reading in and of itself. And so, mm -hmm. but, but that's still, you know, even then you don't want to just write for the sake of it, right? That you want to have a, a grander mm -hmm. purpose. Um, touching on some more things that you said, though, you talked about uh, the antagonist or the villain as being an oppositional force. Um, I want to tie that back into that point of focus because I actually think that it's um, it's not the mundanity of the the time or the occurrence; it's the focus on where the opposition is. So uh, let's say both in stories and in our in our lives, we if we pay attention, the antagonist is very well always present. Right. Most mm -hmm. of the time, I would argue, in our lives, we are, are our own protagonists. There's some uh, ineptitude often is a big one or some vice 
which we'll get into that, I'm sure, a little bit later, uh, that yep. we have not taken all the necessary steps to overcome. And I think right. the We're same all, thing. Is, all in, you know, all of that. Right. And that touches something very, uh, very deep philosophically, actually. Um, so uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's kind of the idea that uh, it's, a, it's a Taoist idea. Uh, that conflict, that it, it's a necessary part of being itself, and being could not exist without conflict. And I think that's, uh, let's say, what makes a good villain paired particularly with a, uh, a very compelling protagonist, so compelling in and of uh, himself usually, or if it's a, you know, whoever, like whatever the villain is, if it's uh, if it's a disembodied force, or if it's the protagonist, um, you know, having an internal conflict, because I think that really um, the the villain in that particular way represents the thing that we are in actuality always uh, running up against. That both, let's say, getting kind of Jordan Peterson about it, uh, particularly in Maps of Meaning. Every, as you were talking, that's all I could think of is like this. This sounds like Maps of Meaning. Uh, so you're on JBP levels of uh, philosophy here. Congratulations. Um, oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but, it, but it, it is the case that meaning, let's say, uh, meaning is produced out of that conflict uh, upon which, let's say, our very being itself is uh, predicated. Uh, and so when we're reading um, really good villains or even if we're writing really good villains, uh, that is what we, I think, are, are representing. And you think I'm overblowing the case? Am I getting too, too blue about it? What do you think? No, because uh, you, you have to get into the, um, how do I phrase this? The sort of the, uh, the overarching, the, the, the grand principles that govern how narrative works sort of in the nitty gritty. And like the mac you have to get into the macro in order to get into the micro, if that makes sense. Uh, it, it may, it, uh, elaborate a little bit more um well people tend to focus specifically like when they when they ask questions like you know how do you write a good villain people tend to focus on specific villains uh without understanding the the overarching let's say purpose in, in a grand scale because the overarching purpose in the grand scale will help you to figure out how the particular villain ought to be constructed let's say in this particular narrative at this particular point in this you know with this with this particular hero because um, they're all different, you know, and this is also the reason why if someone says, well, write a villain like the Joker, like the Joker only works in stories where the Joker works. He he would not work, for example, in, you know, your Lord of the Rings. You you could not use all the same principles of constructing that villain elsewhere. So that's why I'm saying um, pulling back completely, you know, to, to the, the full scope to here, where we're taking a sort of a, a, almost a low res, you know, view of narrative and how narrative works in this case. So we can encompass mythology all the way to, let's say, you know, comic books, movies. They will all have somewhere in there, right, the spine, the through line. That is the principle that will help us to understand what a villain is and what a villain is for. And then you can get into the details. So macro in order to understand the micro. Okay, that, may, that makes sense, right? So what this is essentially pointing out is the fact that an antagonist is uh, a bit, not a bit, is contingent upon the protagonist and the conflict um, that is a protagonist that either is trying to avoid or overcome or whatever, you know, whatever is getting in the way, right? By, ne by necessity, right? So the antagonist uh, and also comes it, second. 
it also depends on the theme and uh, precisely what sort of argument you're you're writing. You know, um, because not all stories are written in you know the same way, nor should they be, because uh, they all kind of focus on on different things. So that's what I'm saying. It's even theme will inter will uh, affect what works best as an antagonist or as a villain in a particular story. Yeah, and that that kind of harkens onto your point even more. It's um, we have to remember antagonist is going to be opposition and that's going to what it's what is being opposed depends like you just mentioned on the theme what is the what is being argued um something that popped into my mind was also that that's the let's say the part of what defines an antagonist um as opposed to something like either a tragic hero or uh, something mm -hmm. like an anti-hero obviously the the tragic hero or tragic hero and the um Antihero are protagonist characters, so they've got other differences. But uh, right, but one key can, difference is uh, is that. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying you can also have a villain protagonist too, although those are somewhat more recent, I would argue, in the history of mankind. Oh, that's interesting. Let's get into that because uh, I know I've heard the term villain uh, protagonist, but I haven't given it any consideration at all. So tell me about it. Well, you have characters, I can't remember the name, the, the main character in I Am Legend, for example, is actually a villain protagonist. Um, what that usually ends up being is a story being told from the point of view, and when I say the villain, I usually they're trying to say the antagonist of a different person's story, which, you know, fair enough, because everyone's an antagonist in somebody else's story. But they also usually seem to mean um, a hero who is villainous, right? That... Their their main goals are you know villainous in nature, ambition, or you know something like that. That they they're not the strictest hero in this in this in the strictest sense. Usually, though, villain protagonists end up going through a heroic arc. So in that sense, if you want, to, okay, now we got to talk about arcs. Sorry, because there's a couple different arcs, right? There's a heroic arc where you know the hero ends up sort of coming up to his flaw and overcoming the flaw, you know, integrating it in a, in a positive way, and then you know coming back to the beginning, but now you know a better person. You have a villainous arc where the hero you know comes up to the um, his flaw ultimately embraces it and then falls and becomes a villain. Um, you have a, uh, what is it, like the Hamartia, right? Just the failed arc where they come up to the flaw, they cannot overcome it, they don't integrate it in a negative sense, they just, it just destroys them. Um, so villain protagonists tend to end up going through heroic arcs, but another version actually of a villain, a villain protagonist, and so I just talked about Breaking Bad, would be Walter White. You know, um, now it's a little bit different because he is actually going through, I would argue, a villainous arc, but he spends quite a bit of the story also just as a as a villain. Um, in this case, we start out, though, with him being more heroic. I'm trying to think of a better one, not just the Iron Legend guy. Oddly enough, we've been trying to we've been trying to do that with things like um, movies, actually, especially kids movies, oddly enough, like the freaking stupid minions and grew you know, the whole freaking thing. Um, you know, uh, they've also, they're attempting to do that with, like, Suicide Squad. I don't know that they necessarily know how to do a good job with villainous arcs, I would, or villain protagonists. I would say the best one probably would be Dr. Frankenstein from Frankenstein. Um, although people usually view him as a hero, but if you look at Dr. Frankenstein, he has, it's like, what good qualities does Dr. Frankenstein have? It's like, I'll wait, you know, while you find one. I really one. loved his, um, uh, his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that, like, you know, I felt, I felt genuinely sorry for him. No, you can feel sorry for him because he is the protagonist and you can under, you can see how his flaws end up destroying him. Right. But he's not a heroic character. He's, 
pretty much a villain all the way through. It, it, like I say, it's, it's very difficult to find good qualities in Dr. Frankenstein. He's, you know, he's got something of a god complex that's fairly clear. So you're like, okay, we're off to a great start from the beginning. He's a coward. He's, um, I wouldn't say shifty. He, he's shifty with regards to his, um, let's say, internal strength. He has very little internal strength. He, he gets uh, sort of overcome constantly by various emotions and concerns and anxieties and fears. And, it's, and some of them are quite ridiculous. Um, he feels no responsibility. And you could say, to a certain extent, though, because he is the protagonist, and we get to be in his mind and we see what it's like to be this kind of person why it's still somewhat tragic when he dies, because you're like, oh man, you know, he was overcome constantly by his flaws. In that sense, he, he is non-stop going through the failed arc, the Hamartia arc, right, where he fails to hit the, the target over and over and over again. Um, but to a certain extent, it's almost like, could he have done better? I don't know. He seems to have just been made of weak stuff, if you want to, you know, kind of get, talk about it in sort of an old-timey way. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And it's almost like, man, there was so much talent here. If only the man himself had had a stronger moral fortitude, maybe he could have done, you know, something interesting. But alas, what we got is this, you know. Um, so at this at this point, I think we have to delineate between um, evil and vice. And the reason okay. why is because Dr. Frankenstein is a really great example of why. Because my head wants it in my head, I'm arguing, well... It sounds to me that he is a tragic hero, but the problem with that is, from my view, what would make him a tragic hero is that my definition of hero is older, does not really include the dimension of good and evil. And so there, mm. that's why I think that all of a sudden, you know, that's going to cause all kind of, uh, even though I probably you, you're very familiar with the old heroic idea and good and evil really aren't conceptions uh, right. per just, se that are relevant. Versus their guy. And I don't care what my guy is like. He's our guy and therefore he's the best <laughs> in every way. Yep. Yeah. So, so, and, it, so yeah, if you had to define. Right. Yeah. So if you had to define the difference between evil and vice, um, how would you define each? Hmm. If I was put on the spot here, I would say vice is. It's to use actually an Orthodox Christian term. It's a passion which has become rooted in a person, which to a certain extent they actually no longer have almost control over it. So um, let's talk about, let's say, lust. That's a very easy one, right? Everyone struggles with a certain point of it. But when you have it as a vice, it's actually something where it's almost like it's a demon that you have to feed now. You, you can't just be like, well, you know, I thought that lady was hot. Um, and that was something I struggled with, but then I moved on with my life and I didn't succumb. Whereas if you have a full-on vice, it is, there is such, such a, um, a weakness, let's say, to your moral foundation there, that like the, the pillar is gone. And you, so you fall to it constantly. It's, it's sort of, you're overcome, let's say, by that. However, the evil would be like the, um, again, if we're kind of pulling back a little bit, the evil is the underlying principle, right, um, underneath the vice. So the evil is sort of over and above all vices. Uh, and vices are sort of the this, this particular manifestations of them in individuals or in a society, if you want to go there as well. Um, so evil would be um, like, okay, let's say pride is the vice, right? And let's say based on like narcissism or whatever, but the evil behind it ultimately is the desire, let's say, you know, um, to supplant God, right? And that that's the root of it, but it, it manifests specifically here and there and all these little tiny little bits. And so we're looking at kind of almost the the 
the grand evil, but with it through a slit. So we're only seeing this little narrow manifestation, if that makes sense. It does. Um, so essentially what we have here is vice is a lack of, um, we could use the word control. I think you use the word control, but we could probably even say. Uh, moral fortitude maybe, would be a way to phrase it. Perhaps. Yeah, moral fortitude. Well, I was thinking it's almost like, well, you've got uh, a passion, right? So that's like an mm -hmm. emotion uh, and instinct to drive. Um, and the idea is that in order to, uh, so morality, good and evil, are more fundamental. And uh, vice is a, let's say, failure to restrain, perhaps is the, um, is the right word, restrain a, a passion so that one's, uh, let's say, impulses thoughts and behavior uh, orient one toward something that would be evil. Um, I guess my question is, uh, what then is evil specifically? So I can understand vice in relation to evil um, with, with that conception, but what, what is evil itself? Evil itself. Let me see if I can come up with this here. Um... Because to say the opposite of good, of course, begs many questions, such as what is good. Evil, in this case, would have to be the, the worst possible, I don't want to say behavior, but worst possible outlook leading to the worst possible outcome, perhaps. Um, and to, if you want to say that's subjective in the sense that maybe you know one person wants to have a genocide or whatever, I, I kind of almost say it's not worth having a conversation unless we sort of accept that there's a certain amount of, this must be objective, otherwise we can't communicate. That there is an objective, um, incorrect, shall we say, mode of being, way of thinking, uh, method, method of acting, interact with other people, um, or each other, or the universe, you know, all, all the way up and down at every level that you can conceive of. So evil would be the, the sort of, the pure spiritual, I don't want to say manifestation, because it's not manifest to a certain extent, it's just, it is almost just the concept itself, right? Just the spirit of it. The, the driving force behind the individual actions that happen here and there, you know, in, in the earth, if you will. Um, evil, you could look at as, you know, uh, you could, because you could define it as many things like, you know, extreme ignorance, um, extreme selfishness, extreme, but this is, again, I feel like not quite getting as, as far as I want. It is... I don't know if this is the correct way to put it. It's almost like the anti-reality, right? Because um, if you want to get into like maybe a hierarchical way of thinking, like there there's things that are like a more appropriate method of being or acting or thinking. Evil is always the the pulling away from or as far away from that as possibly the reorienting in the worst possible direction. I don't know if I'm quite getting to it and whether this well, makes I, sense. I think you. I think it does. So I'm going to. Uh, do something that Nietzsche wouldn't like, which is frame Nietzsche's uh, philosophy and and essentially alongside Christianity because I think it, it's useful for the conversation. Um, oh, it so, is. Yeah. Uh, but, so she by the Christian that he gave uh, himself credit for. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you mentioned anti-reality, and um, you know from reading lots of Nietzsche, he essentially uh, when particularly what he meant by beyond good and evil in that, that book's title in uh, Echo mm -hmm. Homo. Uh, he, he talks about this he, quite uh, explicitly, which is one of the rare times he's explicit about anything. Um, and <laughs> essentially what I think 
or what I what I concluded um, is that fundamentally, what lies beyond good and evil is essentially uh, yay and nay in art to being itself. Right. So the question is, is being itself justified? And um, as far as I can tell, evil is nay. Right, evil is to say that which is ought not to be, and then I, I mentioned I would I put this alongside Christianity, and mm -hmm. you know you've got uh, let's just take Genesis for example. So God spake upon the face of the waters, uh, and and he, he had creation, and he said it was good. Mm -hmm. Right. So what does that mean? So that means being come out of chaos, order come out of chaos, is in and of itself that which is good, and the mm -hmm. notion therefore that. All that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly, to quote Mephistopheles, is itself that which is evil, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's uh, what do you think? Do you think that my, uh, you know, weird cabal or cobble, co cobbling of things that aren't supposed to go together um, is coherent? Yeah, I think that would be um, a fundamental principle, right? Whether even existence itself. Right versus anti-existence is you. You could go that yeah. You could go that far as a way of uh, explaining it. Yeah, and I want to tie that back into vice uh, because again, from this is from <laughs> you're coming of, right back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that we right? went <laughs> so my conception of vice uh, and virtue, for that matter, um, are that which results in. Yay and nay saying, respectively. So virtue is what brings one to look upon existence and say, yes, this is justified. And vice is that which uh, would say, uh, I'll, I'll use Nietzschean terms, it's, vice is this, essentially that which is decadent. It's that which rots one. And why is that relevant? Well, when one becomes, uh, this is very Nietzschean, so that we, we might depart from each other, but that's okay. It always makes a fun conversation. So that which uh, prevents one from fulfilling his will to power, right? His ability to enact his will in the world to a greater and greater degree. Now you can orient your will in accord with reality, which is what I think we should be doing. But uh, put th putting that aside, vice is that which makes one less and less able to fulfill one's will to power, which in inevitably makes one resentful and bitter and vengeful. And in that bitter vengeance, one, uh, like Satan in Paradise Lost, decides, okay, if God is good, because we are against God and we are angry that we lost, we will now take up the mantle of evil in opposition. So this is Nietzschean slave morality, right? Like, we hate the masters because we envy them and are jealous of uh, of them that they might take from us uh, what we think that we are owed type of deal. So I think uh, vices are that which, and essentially that's the naysaying, right? So those that the slave morality ends up being evil or, or causing one to be evil. And I think the mechanism is vice, right? Because uh, the vice makes one weaker, makes one less. I think it was Jesse Lee Peterson who uh, I love listening to because he's so unabashedly uh, plain and direct with what he said. I think he said, weakness is evil. And I really think that's an inarticulate way of saying weakness is the conduit through which evil spawns its demons into the world, if I want to get kind of, uh, I don't know, poetic right, about would, it. 
will manifest in in the, the matrix of reality, if you want to put it that way. Yes. Okay. And so, so I think are we? It seems like we're on board actually, which I wasn't expecting. Are we? We're on board with each other. With relatively. Evil and, and relatively. Relatively. Yeah, obviously my my uh, disagreement with Nietzsche in general is because the idea of exerting one's will as sort of as if you were the be all end all is an inherently flawed mindset because you are not the be all end all and I think that a lot of utopianists etc throughout all of history have pretty much demonstrated that we're not. So uh and that unfortunately such a mindset tends to lead towards horror stories. Uh or you know, I could even say it. It's a the, the, it's the mindset of the magician, if you want to put it that way. But that's a, that's we're getting into, I think maybe <laughs> the wrong direction. If I want to get to start, you know, picking that apart. So uh, yeah, yeah, we could have a. I, I mean, I don't disagree with you actually, in particular with the the comment of the magician, because uh, becoming more and more familiar with uh, essentially um, hermetic ideas. Nietzsche is really freaking hermetic. Uh, particularly mm. in the same way that Goethe seems to be, I want to read Goethe's stuff. Uh, very, it, he's in, a, he's hermetic in a weird direction, um, in the opposite direction to someone, let's say like Hegel. We won't dive too. I won't talk about that because that's <laughs> going to be a whole conversation that takes us in the wrong direction. But I will say, actually, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're about to wrap right back into that. Uh, but I do want to say, uh, in defense of Nietzsche, I actually don't think I think Nietzsche. And it's his own fault, uh, because uh, what is it in Beyond Good and Evil? He says something like, uh, I do everything to be difficultly understood myself, something like that. Uh, so it's his own fault that he's misunderstood. Uh, but I actually think from you know reading and reading his works um, that there, that the idea is to, let's say, uh, essentially collapse the realm of forms in, back into reality. And part of that necessarily means bringing one's will in accord with what is, uh, which is not the same thing as, uh, let's say, what we're familiar with in terms of hermetics, where the alchemists, um, or I like to call them the black alchemists, because I think that they basically don't understand their, their own ideas, but then maybe that makes me like a weird uh, hermetic hermetic <laughs> or something. Uh, but, but basically, yeah, right. Uh, but I think that the they 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 the problem is they fail to turn the mirror around they they fail to realize that you're supposed to do this to yourself and through self transformation you make yourself more in accord with reality or if you're a christian more in accord with god because it's like at that point we're talking about the same thing um right if if god is that which is uh what i think is Tom, i think it's thomas aquinas and I, I like that definition right because that makes god the fundamental yeah. objective like god. there is nothing underneath like that is what is right that's why wanna... god's name yeah, or, or i am the existing one is trend well that's why i'm saying that's why god's name is i am or i've seen other translations of i am the existing one you know that is the name of god <laughs> yes. there, there's there's uh, no fundament yeah and and so in that case to, to to wrap that part of the conversation up that uh, is essentially i think that to fulfill one's will to power you have to put yourself in accord with reality or you are screwed. <laughs> right. Uh, so in a <laughs> sense, if you, if you want to, if you want to think of it that way, you have to put yourself in accord with God. If we, if we want to call reality God, uh, or if we're, we're, you know, religious in that more fundamental sense, I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, I'm not a very good atheist, I guess. Uh, but 
let's let's talk about villains. So now now that we've um, de- delineated kind of between evil and, and vice, I want to talk about the idea of villains across time and cultures because I think this is going to uh, this is going to tie back into an earlier part of a conversation. You like if we talk about like an ancient Greek hero, right? Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, people might say they're kind of villainous compared to modern moral standards. Yes. Yes. Um, now, I guess the question is, because you were talking before, we were talking about um, uh, what was it uh, villain protagonists? Yes. And and I think the question is when we're talking about um, an antagonist, that's in opposition, right? That's in opposition to the uh, the, the protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. And that, I'm thinking this through as I'm going, so I might run into a dead end if I do, I apologize. But that presupposes that there is a telos, right? That's the, the purpose or the function or the goal, essentially, of the protagonist. Um, and then the conflict that arises itself um, it's a is either the antagonist or the antagonist is facilitating or perpetuating um, that conflict. So then the question is, okay, the what is the what is the necessary relationship there uh, among the protagonist and the antagonist to, let's say, evil and vice in regard to that conflict? Because we have to tie right because we we've we've talked about villainy being kind of evil. And or, and or vicious, um, but we need it. We need to tie that more directly into, or maybe we don't need to tie that more directly into antagonist. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But if we were going well, to, well, because again, I would say that antagonist is is the much broader uh, category, and villain is a subcategory of that. Okay. So uh, and gen- we- by the way, and in, in, in general use, right? In the case of villain protagonist, it's a little bit different because we have. A protagonist who is a villain. So, and that there's a, that's where there's a little bit of the overla- overlap there. Um, but by and large, villains in stories are usually in the position of at least, if not um, the main antagonist, they're in some sort of sub antagonist or secondary antagonist or something like that. Okay, so we should we should condense down. We shouldn't think of this as antagonist at writ large. We should think of it specifically. Really, what we're talking about are antagonists who have some particular relationship either with evil or uh, with a particular vice that's probably going to uh, move us toward talking about evil, right? Because if vice is like the mechanism behind which drives evil or uh, facilitates the evil impulse. Um, Right. Okay. So where do I want to go with this? There's a couple different directions I have. Um, Would we say then that the the villain is is what is the villain promoting uh vice is the the villain someone who has succumbed to vice and is therefore now pitted on the side of evil um it depends on on the story um and and it also at this point depends on the themes of the particular story what what the the villain ends up let's say embodying right um, like my favorite type of villain usually is the villain foil to the protagonist because that, that that's what makes the themes and the argument, let's say, of the narrative really, really clear. Um, so in that case, you know, Javert to um, you know, Valjean, uh, to go back to Les Mis, um, or even the Joker versus Batman, um, would be some like very well known modern day iconic versions of that. And 
Sam Raimi tried that with Spider-Man 3. It didn't work too well, but he, he tried. Um, uh, another version, I suppose, might be like, say, Moriarty versus Sherlock Holmes, because Moriarty is, to a certain extent, the villain, i.e. the villainous mirror to Sherlock Holmes. Um, I mean, that because, like I say, that brings things into stark contrast, but then, of course, you have to have a story where that is the argument you're having. Um, there are different versions, or other ways of seeing, I think I've seen it done also with villains, is that they are the hero. This is in the way to do the, the foil version. They are the hero, but when they came to it, let's say, a similar trial, um, and they obviously felt this beforehand because they went through a villainous arc clearly before the narrative started, they did not just um, succumb to the flaw, they embraced the flaw and then became sort of that which they despised. Um, like, Magneto's a sort of a version of that, if you want to talk about comic books, right? He he ends up becoming that which he despises and fears um, because of his paranoia or his fear about, you know, the extermination. He becomes the exterminator. Um, but that works for that kind of story. Uh, in other stories, you can sometimes have, you know, a completely different type of villain opposed to you. Um, although I would say that usually their villainy has to in some way bring them in direct conflict obviously with the protagonists otherwise they don't make a good villain um i'm trying to think all my literature is like 1800s and stuff i'm thinking about something more recent um no people need to learn about old things it's important uh, come to think of it phantom of the opera maybe um although he's a, a villain that ends up kind of going through a heroic arc by stint to the fact that we have a uh, a flat arc Character, sorry. Some of the eighteenth, the nineteenth century, those stories don't follow our modern structure. We, we've definitely kind of all—I mm, don't want to say calcified, but distilled, perhaps—narrative um, structures in the modern day, such that we're not allowed to have as much freedom, you know, as we used to. Because I mean, you mentioned Dracula earlier, and I was thinking to myself, "Oh man, talking about the book Dracula is going to be really weird because that one is not a normal, you know, <laughs> structured story." Um, and I actually kind of forgot where I was going with this. We wanted to bring this back to, um, like, what makes a good villain in a story. Remind me of the question. Sorry. Um, I think, uh, honestly, I, I, I've i got other questions boiling at the top of my head. Uh, one thing came up. And no, no, it's fine. This is how this goes. Uh, so one of the part of the subtitle for this episode is why do people choose evil? I think they're making a presupposition there, right? Like we mentioned mm -hmm. someone went through a villainous arc. That's how we describe it in literature. Um, yeah. But when someone went through a, a villainous arc, that could mean a lot of things. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that, that is where the question comes from. So do people, or what is the question that is begged, I should say, uh, is do people choose evil um, or is evil... Uh, something that they are pressed into. Like, how does one end up a uh, character in this case, or we could talk about people in real life because I think it's not different fundamentally. Um, how does mm -hmm. one go through that villainous arc? Why? Why? What makes someone do that? There's there's two different ways, and it kind of depends um, on what caused the the villain the the fall, shall we say. Um, I think to a certain extent, some people choose evil because they they have a belief, let's say, that what they're doing is for some sort of ultimate good, at which point they, I don't think, think of themselves per se as evil. They think that they're doing, like, you know, the best they can with a bad circumstance. Um, 
And then you have people who, let's say, and this is kind of more like the Phantom of the Opera kind of situation, right? Where life has been very cruel to them. And at some point they sort of embrace the idea of, okay, fine. And by the way, I accept that cruel cruelty is evil, but that's all there is. And so I'm going to embrace this evil and do things which I know to be wrong. But as far as I'm concerned, that's all there is anyway, right? So those are the two sort of manifestations, I would argue, of a, you know, a character becoming a villain. That, uh, I guess me... you could... Oh, go mm-hmm. ahead. Oh, I Sorry, go ahead. All right. So that remind that sounds a lot to me, um, like the difference, the uh, crossroads of pessimism. Um, again, this is a Nietzschean idea. I apologize. I'm like, I, I <laughs> have mostly Nietzschean ideas. Uh, that and Taoism uh, and Confucianism. But so there's a cross, a pessimistic crossroads, right? So that you could think of that as you know, you reach the almost like the climactic moment in a story and a, a protagonist might reach. And um, you've actually got, it, it's not two, two choices, but um, there are, we're going to discuss two of the choices that could be made. Uh, so just want to make it clear, I'm not talking about a dichotomy, but just two options. Now, one is the belief in um, what Nietzsche would call uh, essentially uh, an afterworld. This is like the Pluton, uh, Platonic realm of idea, ideals. Um, mm-hmm. And what this is, is um, a thing. This is this is the, the utopia, essentially. Why I say the utopia? Because it's nowhere. So it is the belief in a thing that is different from that which is, that one believes is better, but which is actually nothing. So I'm going to say that again because I know that's going to be confusing as hell to the audience. So you've got one one road, which is the delusion that there is a thing that is that is in opposition to that which is that isn't nothing. The problem is that's a contradiction, right? Like there is no such mm-hmm. thing that is not that is which is which isn't nothing because nothing is that is which not is. Right, like it, it. Someone, it. So that's um, you mentioned the, the the magicians before. So essentially, mm-hmm. magicians are all Neoplatonists. They, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. They they have a belief in that which is not what is, um, and that's one road that that becomes a villain. That ends up being the tyrant uh, in in Nietzsche's uh, idea, like basically where he predicted, yeah. Um, we got this road of pessimism. We're going to have nihilists and we're going to have socialists. And the socialists are going to kill like millions of people. Uh, and, like it, he's like flat out about it. And like he turns out, yeah, he was right. Uh, because of the belief in uh, the greater good, right? So not mm-hmm. the good, not not go back to Christianity for a second, not God is fake on the face of the waters and what he created was good because that's the good, that which is mm-hmm. the greater good. The good that is better than good, um, and then the other way is the nihilism. That's Satan in Paradise Lost, right? So that's the the moral slave that is um, the succumbing to resentment, um, mm-hmm. which kind of begs a question. Like it's it's understandable why someone. Um, I should ask you, since since you're the guest and you're on here, why is it? What do you think draw uh, drives a character? Like, if you're writing a villain, right? Because we're both authors mm-hmm. here, so we can talk about this. You're writing a villain, and so essentially, that with well, the path you just laid out two pathways. Yes. What what motivations do you give for a character to go toward the um, 
let's say the, the tyrant path, which is believing in a greater good that doesn't exist. And then what mm -hmm. motivations do you give to a character who becomes and succumbs to resentment? Sorry, that was my cat. She's sad. I don't take any attention to her. Um, okay, so for a character to become a tyrant, I, I actually do have several versions of them. They tend to have uh, the same sort of, mm, a similar flaw, shall we say, right? Um, then they look at the world, they say, this world is rotten. You know, you're kind of almost getting into the JRPG thing, right? But they, they see that there's a lot of suffering and, you know, bad things in the world. And let's say even they themselves have suffered, which may or may not be the case here. And they think to themselves, well, I need to fix this. Right, because surely there must be a better way to do this. And as they continually try to fix it, and they come up against essentially reality itself, and because they're unable, let's say, to accept that maybe some of the ugliness in the world has to be due to the fact, for example, of a greater good like uh, personal freedom, right? Free will maybe is one of the reasons, or that suffering might serve some sort of purpose, or maybe death serves a purpose, right? All these things, but they they continually are unable to to find the good in the suffering and say, well, but maybe, but what if there wasn't, what if it wasn't that way, right? They keep holding up this ideal that they have. And to a certain extent, it's a good motivation. You would always say, well, we, we want to have a world, right, with no suffering or as little suffering as possible, so on and so forth, but it's taken to some, you know, lunatic <laughs> uh, logical conclusion. And as they continually, again, sort of battle reality and continually have to apply more and more pressure, and at this point you start running into the problem of, I have to start sacrificing, let's say, a smaller ideal of, I don't want suffering, but suppose this little suffering, though, that I have to do in order to try to get to my greater goal of the utopia is surely worth it, because, you know, as, as much as I don't want to do it here, but then think about when we finally get to the end and then no one's suffering ever again, it'll end up being a drop in the bucket, right? And they do this more and more and more and more, and of course, it's, it's a bunch of small decisions that eventually lead them basically to hell. You know, and then by, so by the time you get to the end, you're like, holy goodness, how did you get to be a genocidal maniac? You're like, right, it was a journey of a thousand steps. Um, and that's usually how I handled that. As far as the ones that succumb, um, that for me, usually in a narrative, I, I wanted to talk about the real life, but in a narrative, it would end up being that this is a character who has suffered a lot. And I would even say suffered unjustly, like they didn't even as something they didn't like do on purpose, you know, or that they didn't deserve. And they sort of become subsumed by, almost devoured by the darkness uh, around them. And they find, uh, okay, so I'm going to go, maybe if I'm allowed to, a little bit of spoiler alert about my own series, but I have Elizabeth Bathory, obviously, as 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 a villain. I'll put her that way. Um, and just looking at the real person's letters, for example, and trying to come up with a psychological profile. So I'm going to talk about this. Um, she felt very weak, as far as I can tell, and very vulnerable. And she did not have a positive way of overcoming that. So she fell into a uh, a very, I mean, objectively, you know, evil um, salve, shall we say, for that 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 inner wound of hers. The the she feels weak, and she resents the weakness in herself, and so she goes around killing, essentially, and tormenting this symbolic representation of her weakness. In this case, you know, young girls. Um, over and over and over and over again, as a, a maladaptive attempt to, to you know, to, to kill it within within herself. Or you can have another character, if you want to get, you know, kind of, into, I don't want to go into serial killers per se, but, you know, another one who falls into the resentment of 
it, it you know, I'm going to do it to others because it's been done to me. I was a dog that got kicked around a lot. And this is actually kind of a little bit what Walter White does, if we want to bring it back to that Breaking Bad. Um, you know, because he has this idea that power inevitably is tyrannical. And so when he finally starts, you know, have power, he's like, well, it is tyrannical and turns around and becomes the image of what he views is reality. I guess if I could put it this way, the people who are resentful and kind of fall into evil and sort of embrace it in that sense, they believe fundamentally some sort of flawed idea about reality itself. Then I think that at the core of them, they, they believe that reality in some sense is evil, right? Or that, or that reality is governed, let's say, by evil principles. And so all they're doing really is just embracing or aligning themselves with, with what they think um, is the evil principle of reality. Right, the, okay, well, I've suffered enormously, so it's my turn to turn around and, you know, make others suffer. Because that's, that's how it is. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, that's, like, you, if you want to read some of the Columbine shooters' writings, they essentially make, what you can summarize as the argument is, um, you know, the world is full of demons, it's full of people who are facilitating the actions of these demons who are cruel and evil, and um, there, there's there's no other virtue and I myself am so flawed and I'm a demon and it would be better if everything were just to be destroyed. Um, yeah. They make that, yeah, they, 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 they convince themselves of that judgment. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I was really thinking um, because it, there's, there's, I think, I think we, we might have the, well, maybe, I mean, that would, if we, <laughs> we need to write it down because we're solving the, the deepest philosophical one of the deepest philosophical <laughs> questions that have ever existed right here on the wild Out podcast um that's right but well we you know we very well may be because we're, we're we're sitting on the shoulders of so many giants that came before us but you know i was thinking uh of this this idea um again another nietzschean notion uh but the idea is that you can judge a man worth or his character by the amount of truth that he can handle uh, mm. or tolerates probably a better word and when i when nietzsche uses the word truth and i use the word truth it's we, what we really mean is like uh, objective reality that is which is right yep. um this this ties into uh by the way we want to talk about like that is which is as being god with like uh one of the the stories with um I think it's in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I haven't read it through yet. I need to, but I'm familiar with this story because Joseph Campbell brings it up. Where um, this you know guy doesn't want to go to war with uh, his brother who's rebelling. Yeah, and Arjuna. Yeah, the, the yeah. Okay. So you're familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well to, to not rant, Randall, or ramble on about it too long. Um, I well, think Krishna, the audience would be ahead tell everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the long and short of it is Krishna shows him like the true face of God and the guy is like horrified uh, because it encompasses all like the uh, death and destruction and pain and suffering. Uh, I think he's like sees men being devoured, like our whole horses gnashed between uh, between like the God faces teeth. And it, it's, it, 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 it sends him into like a puddle of piss basically. Um. That that's actually true, right? Like I I like to say Lovecraft is right. Like the 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 true true face of God to a human being is so incomprehensible that it drives it can drive one insane. Uh, I think that's why, like you know, if you would, again wrap this back around because uh, to, to Christianity, since that's part of the framework of our initial part of our conversation, like God doesn't show His face directly to anybody. 
in the Bible, I'm pretty sure. He's always speaking like through something else. Um, and maybe that's because human beings, you know, can't look upon the face of God without being rattled and almost destroyed. Um, and why why am I bringing all that up, right? Because it sounds like a bit of a tangent. I don't think that it is. Um, I think when one succumbs, it's it's like they can't they for whatever reason they cannot bear the truth of reality. Um, they something in them. This is kind of Nietzschean. Something in them is too weak, right? Like they they don't have whatever it is that that constitutes uh, what we could call moral courage to look and say and and continue to say yes, like yes, sir. May I have another, right? Like there's some you mentioned moral fortitude in there, like mm-hmm. something. I don't know what it is because like now we're getting we're getting way too deep into into. <laughs> a real person, psyche, let alone a character. But uh, I think that out of some, there is some, uh, I, I fundamentally think of it as like a lack of courage um, to to suffer more, right? Uh, again, Nietzsche, to say to the demon who says, you will live this life uh, innumerable times with no changes, to say like, ha you've given me the best thing you ever could, to not, it's a fear the, let's say, the the repeated spring it's like the it's almost like the reverse of classical buddhism like uh instead of saying like i want to escape the uh cycle of samsara it's like you know i will i will go through the cycle of samsara an infinite number of times and smile the whole time motherfucker like that kind of attitude right Um, Right. again that's getting very nietzschean about it uh but that seems to be when you're talking about the, the character that succumbs um you know, or would you say that that kind of fits what happens to someone? They they're they're in a state of suffering and they just they cannot bear the weight of it. Something like that. Mm, the, it's the one. Well, I would almost argue none of us can really bear the weight of suffering to a certain extent. Um, that's why everyone hates suffering so much. Um, but I would say probably what my feeling on it is actually a little bit different. Instead, it's that they actually can't bear the weight of hope. In the suffering, because to a certain extent, hope in suffering in some is almost actually painful. I would argue because I mean, there there is always the possibility that you're wrong, and all of this was for nothing, right? Um, and if you embrace despair, to a certain extent, you're trying to you're you're trying to already spare yourself the, the you know the the potential for despair later, right? Because there's almost in some ways nothing more painful then everything was going so well and we were finally going to get there we were going to win the war we were going to get home and it was you know and then it totally did turn turn out your wife and kids were murdered like two years ago horribly like burned alive um your country all this suffering it turned out was for absolutely nothing there was no point to it that is what would crush somebody so my feeling on that is it's it's a form of it's 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 an actual weakness an inability to say that even though you know life is a pit of darkness and let's say I, I dwell in the depths of hell itself, somewhere, somehow, there's a heaven. Even if I can't see it, even if I never reach it, it's there. There, there is a you know a reason for that, and that I think is what they're actually rejecting because that that is the way to turn the suffering into gold, right? Is to be able to 
in spite of everything, in spite of how much it hurts and in spite of how much it basically crushes you to say that there is more than this. I reject that this is, quote unquote, the fundament of reality, right? The, the evil that I'm experiencing, that there is beyond it something else. Um, and part of the reason also is because, of course, it is also quite painful in some ways to think, well, yeah, there is a heaven, there is a love, there is somewhere, but you don't get any. You just get to live in hell forever, you know? Uh, and there's a rejection of why, why can't I have that, you know? Um, or to even accept the fact that maybe you'll never have it, but it's still there and it's still good, even if you don't get any, you know? Uh, so that, that's more my approach, my, my thinking on it. Um, anywho. Yeah, well, that's uh, I, we're we're in agreement. By the way, that's how you make the uh, that's the first step to making the philosopher's stone. I don't know if you knew that. Um, that let's say the change in one's own judgment, um, which would say transforms the orientation of the soul um, that makes it basically turns the leaden soul into gold and then obviously the alchemist thought they could make actual gold out of lead they, they were not correct about that uh <laughs> but the but the symbolic stuff is actually essentially uh it really does highlight what makes a villain let's, let's bring this uh back on to right and we've been going on for a while and to make sure that we, we haven't <laughs> gone too far in a field or actually i don't think we have but for the for the listeners out there to be convinced that we're not just rambling about philosophy now we're actually still talking about writing like when we're writing mm -hmm. our villains, in order to make them, um, when I talked to uh, Michael about this, uh, who I commonly refer to as Captain, uh, mm -hmm. when I talked to Captain about this, uh, we talked about character and we talked about characters that they need, they don't need to be necessarily realistic. That's not a word that we liked. We like the word believable, right? To where Very we. we verisimilitude it has to feel real it does not have to be real and in fact i would actually argue generally speaking it doesn't actually work if they quote unquote are real yeah we run into that um that problem well, a number of problems one of which has to do with that like scene summary problem where there are a bunch of details that aren't relevant to mm -hmm. uh, a character and then sometimes um for the sake of let's say making oneself clear the villain like you can't always have something like a round aka sympathetic i i kind of think of a sympathetic villain basically a round villain um as opposed to an unsympathetic villain which are typically flat right because they're like that's that's like a force that is just evil right right sauron or joffrey might be two versions of that yeah uh Specifically, TV show version of Joffrey as opposed to book version of Joffrey. Was it, I, I, it's been a while since I've read through Song of Ice and Fire while waiting for the uh, the next book. Um, I don't remember Joffrey specifically. Was he that much uh, more? Did he have that many more dimensions in the book? For some reason, it, I don't remember not, him. It, it's not that there were more dimensions, it's that there was only one little, I thought, um, sort of tidbit that I picked up off in the book that was not apparent. I didn't feel it was present in the show, because in the show he was supposed to be just irredeemably hateable, top to bottom. In the book I had the impression that he was he was a mad dog, and that he, he did not understand exactly that what he was doing was evil. I mean, he needed to be put down in the way that a mad dog would be, but he was nothing that he was doing is the kind of malicious that he was doing in the show. Because in the show it was clear he was sadistic, he enjoyed 
causing suffering in others. Whereas in the book, I had the impression, at least from a couple different scenes, that he was sort of confused that people didn't like him because he wasn't doing anything. I mean, yeah, he tortured people, but like, so what? You know, and so in that sense, um, that was why I would say that Joffrey in the book, maybe I'm wrong about this, but, you know, was a little bit of a... A little bit more sympathetic uh, in the sense that you, he was sort of like just born wrong. You're like, man, it was just always going to go this way, and all we can do is kill him, or you I know, put him right. in a box. I know. Yeah. I think you're right. And, as someone who has like sadism as like a part of my uh, personality profile, unfortunately, um, I, there is a difference between like knowing that you're hurting somebody and being kind of like in the book, Joffrey. I think you're right now that I'm thinking about. It, he was more psychopathic where he didn't have an understanding like uh, uh for those of you right. out there who don't know uh i differentiate psychopathy and sociopathy psychopathy is like an inability to really understand the the uh emotional internal natures of other people where sociopathy mm -hmm. is merely not caring so like if you if you're familiar with the big five and personality um if you're really low in trade agreeableness like i don't know zeroth percentile on any of the metrics which i might oh happen boy. to be the yeah i'm like zeroth percentile um you, you've seen my post about like i'm lucky not not in prison like like my dad for those of you who don't know like uh essentially confucianism and 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 martial arts and the, that helped me not not just delve into evil i guess um but yeah the uh the the sociopath typically they know how you feel their skill at empathy is very very good they just don't care <laughs> that they're hurting you <laughs> and sometimes right. it's hard for people to understand uh, but that that is I, I think that delineation between joffrey's characters and the show and the book is is there now that you now that you're talking about it I, I do remember scenes in the book where he's confused as opposed to um just being a calculating say this that he's depicted in the show yeah. um Right. Before we run out of time, I did want to just talk about particular villains of note that you might want to mention. Is are there any villains that um, I don't know you just really feel compelled by that you really like um, or like to hate or however you want to think about that? Hmm. Well, Javert and Le Miz I've mentioned a couple of times, mostly because for me, I I identify a little bit with his rigidness and how that can lead to you know a horror show essentially but that he had all of the best intentions and it was just with this tiny little flaw and his inability to sort of look past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law that led him let's say to a, a horrible end um and those are the kind of villains i think that i generally prefer the ones where i guess i could say where i could see myself going there right the if i if i hadn't thought deeply about something um or or I've missed the 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 underlying purpose let's say to a principle um so uh, th I guess that would be for me uh just those are personally uh although I would say by the way by and large in narratives the two types of villains that I say I would think are most effective are actually the the mythological ones I that trend more towards either impersonal an almost situational at which point the um the problem is you and you have to overcome your own personal flaws based on the pressure that's being applied to you um or else the the villain as foil which again still ends up being sort of a mirror 
to you, the you know, the let's say the protagonist, because to a certain extent, you're supposed to embody the you know protagonist. You're kind of along on their journey because this is a talk about a little bit about either the nature of humanity or the nature of you. Um, so th- those are for me what I think are the most compelling villains, or the, if not compelling, perhaps the most uh, the most useful, the best for people, if I could put it that way. Do you have a particular example of? Um... I keep calling them uh, either unsympathetic or flat villains, but the more force-based villains or the the villains that um, they're less the failure to overcome vice and then becoming evil, but they're more like a, uh, I don't want to say simpler. Uh, the only way I could describe it is like a more unidimensional villain that you particularly like or that you think was uh, well-utilized, if not well-written. Well, I mean... Lord of the Rings is Sauron would have to be like the, I would argue, almost uh, like poster boy for that particular kind of villain. Um, I'm trying to think, think if I can f- even think of another one that comes close to that. Because everyone always ends up just trying to copy that. You're like, no, you really have to understand a principle and come up with your own version, which will look like that one, but it can't be that one. Maybe the the Emperor, actually from Star Wars, Emperor Palpatine, specifically mostly from episodes you know, 4, 5, and 6, more than in episodes one, two, and three. Um, you know what I just noticed is that these hmm. type of villains are essentially the archetypes um, uh, that we just described. So the Emperor Palpatine is the tyrant, right? Yep. Like he's got an idea about how he wants the universe to be and he's going to rule over it. And then Sauron, yes. I'm pretty sure, is, is basically chaos and destruction. I, I haven't read Lord of the Rings, so I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, he's, he's sort of like even the Satan to Satan. So he's kind of like, you know, the, the sub Satan, <laughs> if that makes sense, Satan Jr. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, he embodies, you know, yeah, just chaos and selfishness and his total selfish ambition to dominate. Um, you know, and there's not really anything sympathetic in there. That's not meant to be. He is, you know, essentially a demon, you know, you're not supposed to be sitting there going, but what made him like this? Um, well, I would actually argue in the, in those, in the case of those villains also, what they basically are, they're villainous paragons, right? If you know, of course, you obviously you can use the word archetype, um, but you know, I would say, uh, they are the embodiment of all that is, and then, you know, fill in the blank here <laughs> with, uh, with very little, I hate to say with little subtlety, but you, you can get away with a little bit less subtlety, I think, with villains than you do with protagonists, if you want them to, if you want people to identify with the protagonist. Yeah, and I think that's because in life, our real-life antagonists are not always multidimensional. Like, if, if you're in the position of uh, Odysseus, like, mm-hmm. part of the villain is, like, your home is way way the fuck over there. <laughs> like, it's, yep. you know, it, the, the big force is, like, I have to get across this vast distance. Or uh, when I was talking right. with Nate, he brought up uh, Anabasis, I think is how you pronounce it, where the, the Greek soldiers are stranded and they have to to get home. Um, and that's the inspiration for the novel, the warriors, which I very much like. Um, I actually, I really like the novel and the movies actually, the movie is really good too, uh, for the warriors, uh, a couple mm-hmm. villains. I'm trying to think of, a, a more, let's say a more archetypally Sauron-esque villain that I Dracula. like, uh, I, I, I admit, I have to admit now confess, confess is the right word that I have, uh, I have not read the actual source material. No. The, so 
have not read Stoker. Very, very few people have actually read Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's weird because it's never been out of print since it was published. Uh, and I find that very curious. Um, I also find it very curious. I would actually argue that Count Dracula, to a certain extent, is the icon in our modern day, which is fascinating. Um, everyone knows who Count Dracula is, even if they don't read the book and they don't know much about him. But like, he he is actually the a fictional character who has appeared in more works of fiction. I mean, i.e., in other people's fiction, for example, than any other fictional character in history. Um, the number two would be Mickey Mouse, and he's a very distant second. Count Dracula has been used everywhere. We can't get enough of him, and I find that very fascinating. Because um, Stoker, of course, actually um, he envisioned. I don't know to what extent he actually accomplished this, but his intent uh, when he set out was that Count Dracula was going to be an Antichrist figure. Um, what he presented, of course, is a little tricky, because on the one hand, Count, Count Dracula is a very strange character. On the one hand, he is the totally human, sympathetic, multidimensional villain who, where you can almost understand his psyche. And on the other hand, he's also the overarching Sauron. Like, simultaneously. And in that sense, it's kind of an interesting... That's also the reason I say that the book Dracula is actually kind of difficult to um, to analyze, because it's not structured like a lot of other stories, um, even in the way that the heroes fit together, or how the, the villain antagonist, and even how they approach him or his relationship to them. It's, it's a very odd book. Uh, I've, I've, there's an apocryphal um, story, actually, that Sir Henry Irving, whom, for whom Stoker worked, when he first came across the book, there's an apocryphal story that he said one word of it, which was terrible or dreadful, actually was the word. Um, I've, I've read Dracula, I think, three times. It is, it is a fascinating little book. Very flawed, but very interesting. Um, I don't know how much time you want to like spend actually analyzing the, the character of Count Dracula or not. I'm tempted to, to dive in because, I, like I said, I haven't read it. Um... Tell me, I want to ask a question, and then you can you can dive in as deeply as you would like to go in terms of your analysis. Um, so it sounds to me that uh, Dracula was an attempt at actually uh, embodying both archetypes of villainy, so both the tyrant and the, uh, let's say, chaos. If, if, is that right? I think so. Um and I have a theory about how exactly Stoker was managing to do that. Um, but yes, I would say that that's probably, even if accidentally, I think that's what Stoker ended up doing. Um, and and no part wonder of the... it, he struggled, because that's got to be difficult to, because those are kind of opposites in a way, almost. Yes, they are. Um, and I think one of the reasons why Count Dracula in particular, so, and this is part of the reason that we have to spend so much time in the book of Dracula, kind of going over his history and his psychology and everything else. We have different characters giving us different windows into the Count um, at different times, and they bring different um, visions, let's say. Uh, so, on the one hand, he's a massively powerful, um, you know, monster. Right, but when we first introduced to him in the book, he's actually, and this is the thing that a lot of readers when they first approach this get kind of like they kind of get amused by. Um, he is in a very weakened state. He has to pretend to be his own servants. Like so, there's the whole like first part of the book because it's from Jonathan Harker's journals. You know, you have Dracula has to pretend to be his own coachman, go out there, pick up Jonathan Harker, drive him to the castle, then like quickly scoot out of the way, get changed, and like come out. So I am totally Count Dracula. I have you know dinner here. Never mind, the servants are all asleep. It's fine. Um, and then when Harker the room has to like scramble, put all the dishes away, and then like pretend like he was like lounging in front of the fire. It's it is kind of funny when you think of it in the visual sense. 
Um, but that's because he's in this weakened state. Then as the story continues, you get different views of him, because um, his power level does affect, to a certain extent, how much of a threat he actually is. Um, and a certain amount of his threat also actually comes down to the, the worldview and the structure of Victorian England, and specifically Protestantism, actually. It's, it's kind of interesting. So, uh, all right, so I have to try to go do this quickly. A couple of things. Let's start about just the, chrono- the chronology of Count Dracula the character. Um, once upon a time, there was an actual human being named Dracula, right? And by the way, Stoker did not mean Vlad the Impaler. He just had the name. That's all he knew. So his version of Dracula was probably actually John Hunyadi. We don't want to get into details. Um, but referencing a Hungarian uh, folktale where ten, essentially, people who wanted to learn to be sorcerers or alchemists or, you know, whatever, you know, magicians, again, we're going back to that, would go up a certain mountain and uh, they'd make a deal with the devil so that he would teach them all these magical powers, and then at the end of, I think it was like 10 years or a year, he would take one of them as payment, and the other nine could go free. And so in the story, Dracula himself is the tenth who was taken by the devil. So, what people don't realize is a lot of Dracula's powers in the book are not because he's a vampire, it's because he's a sorcerer. (laughs) So the people ascribe certain abilities to vampires, and that was not Stoker's intention. Um, So on the one hand, we have Dracula the human being, Right, the man. Uh, and on the other hand, we actually have Dracula, the Satan, the devil. And those, this is why I think that the character is able to encompass both of those, you know, very, as you said, disparate villain sort of archetypes. Dracula, the man, especially as he's described eventually by um, uh, Abraham Van Helsing, is, in this case, actually to go back to vice. He's almost an embodiment of a number of different vices. It's heavily implied, like, he's... Um, like he satisfies himself sexually, right? Because he's almost tri- and he's actually he's he's fallen so deep into vice he's almost becoming childish. Like he cannot deny himself to a certain extent. Um, his own vices, uh, you know, greed, a lust for power, sex, all of these things, and it's it's sort of diminished him as a human being at this point to where he's almost animalistic. Uh, Abraham Van Helsing, of course, uh, describes he certainly has all the cunning and the intellect of himself back when he was you know human. But he's sort of almost evolved to this um, basically hungry animal. At the same time, though, he, he is basically powered by or even theoretically possessed by Satan. Um, and so this is where it kind of comes back to there's a, an overarching. So the reason Dracula became diminished in his home territory, Transylvania, is because the people down there, and Stoker, of course, is approaching it himself as an Irish Protestant, um, you know, oh, those silly little Catholics and their weird superstitions and everything else. But the, the superstitions, or at least, the, let's say, the deeper understanding or the, the, the deeper fear of, you know, like a, a, a true overarching, almost palpable, tangible evil, right, a spiritual evil, allowed the villagers and everyone else around Count Dracula to be frightened enough of him that he's been slowly starving to death because no one will approach his castle. No one is going to send children to him. No one's going to talk to him. They're like, this is the crazy weird vampire sorcerer. We want nothing to do with him. And because of their quote-unquote, you know, uh, I think the term actually Stoker uses is primitive faith. Like, they put faith in the crucifixes and everything else, and he's going, oh, oh how very silly, how very superstitious. They have, you know... Uh, he views um, Harker, and maybe... I don't want to say Stoker, because Stoker maybe had some Catholic sympathies, but Harker almost kind of views this as uh, like people having faith in, like, fetishes and such like that. I mean, obviously I would have, I have disagreement, but that's Harker's approach to it. 
So Dracula, at this point, realizing that he can make no progress in in a in a place where good and evil, where they where they live in a, a let's say an enchanted world, right, where they still understand that you know the forces of good and evil are are very present and they're present in every part of life, hears about the super enlightened England, and these folks, for example, we have all these these things like God is dead, you know, we have Darwinism, we have all these super enlightened things, and maybe evil is just a subjective concept, maybe you know none of this is real. And this is the perfect place, of course, for Dracula, i.e. this horrible, actual, palpable, manifest evil to hide, because no one will know he's there. Um, and so in that sense, he's actually also a contagion. This is another aspect of what makes him a, an existential threat uh, to England in particular. Because uh, no one, not only do they not know that this evil is real, they also don't know what to do about it because they don't have the kind of faith that would be required to deal with this kind of a spiritual evil. And of course, they don't know the methodologies. Um, and they're too proper. I mean, like we're not, we're not superstitious up here. We don't put stakes in dead people. What kind of nonsense is all this about? And so um, Dracula getting to England is sort of uh, is is a very real threat that he could actually destroy the entire country from within without anyone ever realizing he was doing it because they're blind to the threat. Um, and that's where he starts becoming sort of the Sauron esque, right? Because he's he's a force, an unstoppable force of contagion against which basically nobody in the country has any defense. Uh, and it requires our characters actually sort of embracing the what they might consider as the superstitious, if you will, you know, um, ideas. Stoker still approaches this from a Protestant point of view, where, you know, to a certain extent it's all spells as opposed to, like, faith or anything, but, you know, whatever, Stoker, he, he did what he did. And uh, at the end of the story, which is also kind of interesting, is um, when they kill Dracula... When he's killed, actually, this is a great mercy to him because they're still the man, trapped in there, um, enslaved by vices and sort of almost debased as a human being, right, at the end of the day. And so when they kill him, his soul is actually freed from this sort of direct, um, the uh, the passions that have overtaken him. It's, it's freed from Satan. So with the last image they have of his face actually is finally of the man where he's at peace and he's, you know, kind of restored to his human dignity. Um, and that's, again, a kind of an interesting, I don't think you get that, certainly not in big bad characters, but I don't think you even get that in, like, the, um, the characters who have fallen into the, who have embraced, let's say, the, the lie of the world being evil and therefore so shall I, where it's implied that potentially, even after all of this, maybe the man can still be redeemed, like his soul. Um, and that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. I don't think that people necessarily focus on that, because, again, no one's read, no one's read the book. So... Whatever. Um, uh, it sounds sorry, like it they should read the book. Uh, honestly, that convinces me. That can that analysis there has convinced me. I need to put it higher. I'm way way higher on my priority list for reading. Um, I want to say a couple things about it before we before we go on too long, if you don't mind. Um, sure. One, Jack is way way more interesting than I thought. Like way 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 <laughs> more interesting. Um, but this also. Uh, perhaps this is two things. The first most is there is a, that book probably mentioned it was kind of flawed in many ways. Um, I yes. think, I think that was an inevitability. Um, and the reason why is because to, to simultaneously juggle all of those, let's say, uh, I would call them archetypes. Uh, I could pick them out bit by bit as you're going through. 
Um, mm-hmm. To have all of those in one cohesive narrative necessarily means, I think, you're going to have to sacrifice um, the cleanliness, the communication of a uh, singular theme, if you want, if you mm-hmm. will, in order to have multiple themes at the same time, which is going to, it's it's going to feel jumbled. It's going to, you know, it's when you try to do more at once, you, you, in a sense, in a way, get a little bit less of each, even though you get more total because there's more present. Um, and that, I think, um, that's an argument, or that's a premise to an argument that I would make that even if a book is flawed, that does not mean it is bad. And in fact, I would say that um, book, all all books, all anything, anything you, you imbibe, uh, any media you imbibe, particularly any novels you read or short stories mm-hmm. you read, are going to be flawed. And that should not be a reason not to read them. And in fact, what it sounds like to me is if you want to understand how to write a number of villains, you you read uh, Stoker's Dracula, and then you understand how all in all the different ways that he is a villain. And then through understanding that, you can take the pieces off or mix and match them. And, and I guess not mix, but or rather not match, but so you can include them um, all together if if you want to do that. But like if you want to be a better writer, um, you should probably read older books and flaw books that you might think are flawed for a number of reasons. Or even if you think that um, the villain is overdone, you should still pay attention uh, because that the, the level of depth there. Um, like I said, for me, for someone who does literary analysis and um, particularly now that I'm editing, you have to think in this way to help other authors, uh, you know, get the get the most out of the writing. That is that sounds like an incredible resource. I can now I understand your fascination with the subject matter. <laughs> a lot yeah. More. yeah, it's a. Uh... It is it is interesting and also to kind of also um, pull back and understand a sort of Stoker's position and his friends and the culture of the time. And it's, it's, there's a reason why also Dracula, when it was released, um, it hit so very hard. Because um, at the time, of course, 1897, we're not precisely in, let's say, the height of gothic horror, per se. I mean, we had num- numerous vampire stories actually going back and into the 1700s that had never been Dracula, you know, the book. It had not, like become part of the, the the culture almost like a permanent part of the culture um like no one cares about dumas book on freaking vampires i forget even the name of it it's a little short story but no one cares about that no one even really reads carmilla although unless you're a weirdo like me um the other thing that stoker did i think that was uh very it was an interesting take is he because the structure of the novel is that you're reading like newspaper clippings and people's journals and all kinds of stuff to kind of get it so it's it's you're always stuck very deeply inside somebody's personal experience and what they're seeing at the time and what they can what they're able to report so in that sense he's appealing to the 19th century you know we're all scientists and this is all reality and only empiricism and all these other things and then having people in a sort of empiric way presenting this fantastical, but there's also this this monster, let's say, from the old world, right? But it's here among us, and it's here now, and I've talked to it, and I've seen it, and I've touched it. 
and you know, and I'm presenting this to you now, and that that also, uh, I think, shook readers at the time because there wasn't previous stories had been kind of you know sort of even in gothic stories of well there's this you know mansion up in a mountain somewhere with this you know family you've never heard of with a weird secret but it's not tangibly real right in the way that stoker was attempting to make it like he when i say he has like fake newspaper clippings he actually writes up like fake articles and says okay so this is a newspaper written about you know lucy as a vampire preying, preying on children and you're seeing through the eyes of the victorians writing about this and this is also how you know how big of a threat dracula is the victorians writing about this have no way of understanding what they're looking at. They're like, hmm, there's some sort of weird lady who's picking up children. That's odd. You know, that's probably not good. But they don't see the, the deeper underlying threat beneath it or, or understand exactly even, like, why Lucy is doing this or have any way of deducing that. So you get um, sort of the culture's own prejudices, in some sense, um, reflected back at it and saying, this is how vulnerable you actually are. Um, because you're unable to perceive a threat, right? A threat this um, this uh, powerful. Um, and so I think that that actually ended up really getting under the Victorians' skins. And then it, it, it kind of horrified them so much as part of the reason why I think it did become such a part of the culture and why it's steeped in. And we have obviously mostly flanderized versions of the, of the character of Dracula because like, people look at it now, they're like, oh yeah, big vampire man, la 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 without thinking about it, because no one reads the books anymore. <laughs> um, and a lot of people, when they read it, of course, it is structurally kind of a mess, because you have, you know, this person's journal and these newspaper clippings and this other thing over here, and this one sea captain and this, uh, you know, Mina Harker, who's, like, compiling everybody's, you know, narratives together and, like, creating her own sort of, all right, this is the summary of what's happened so far for, you know, in case I need this for documentation later. Uh, and that can be a little frustrating to read, and not what people are used to. Also, there's not a lot of action, because there isn't. It's mostly cat and mouse between the characters and society at large and Dracula. Because, you know, for better or for worse, except for the Texan, they're always like, well, we can't just, like, storm into the freaking mansion during the day. We'll get caught by the police. We need to go at night when, you know, Dracula's awake. I'm going, <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, that's that's a plan. You could, you could do that. That's good. You know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, there are definitely things if you just read Dracula without trying to understand what it's telling you, like on the surface it is actually kind of a hilarious book where you're like, what is anyone doing? This is so funny um, and you have to, you have to think uh, I think, understand the culture in which it existed and what the author is trying to tell you before you really get the horror of it So, Yeah, I get that um, a bit with um, Lovecraft because uh, very few of his stories ever you know, frightened me. Um, Shadows over Innsmouth, there's a particular scene that actually did successfully instill a deep feeling of fear into me. But mm -hmm. um, but also the problem is I'm like a jaded modern atheist. And so like <laughs> maybe if I was, um, you know, early 20th century Christian reading Lovecraft, there might be some eerie ideas, right? Like that, that would really bother me. Um, so I, I definitely understand you need to be at least understand the context in which the thing was written to have it have its, uh, let's say, correct effect. In the same way that you have to be able to understand the language properly to enjoy a novel. You can't right. say this novel is bad because I don't read, I don't know, Spanish, Spanish if you're trying to read um, Don Quixote, because that, that was originally written in Spanish. Do I have that right? I don't want to get that right, wrong yes. on the air. That'd be embarrassing. Okay. Just to make sure, I was like, that definitely does not sound French. It's definitely Spanish. Um, so we've run on kind of long. Um, 
I I don't know that I want to try and follow up your analysis of Dracula with um, the the villains that I have, but I think I I should just just in case you still have the time. Yes. Okay, so I'm gonna list off. I've got three villains listed here. Um, they, okay. One comes from written fiction. The other, and he's not really a villain technically in the book. He's kind of written as a protagonist, but like he's so evil, um, and he ends up leading characters to their doom. He's kind of a, a, a villain in that sense. Uh, one's from a game, and the other's from an anime slash manga. So you tell me which sounds interesting to you, or if you've heard of any of these characters, and then I'll I'll dive down that particular rabbit hole. So for um, Fiction, I've got Judge Holden from Blood Meridian. Are you familiar? Uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian? No, I'm not, actually. Okay. Uh, he's essentially uh, an embo- a hyper-eloquent, pale, bald giant who um, is second in command of a lead of, uh, or not lead, uh, second in command of a gang of scalpers out west. Um, this takes place shortly after the Mexican-American War. Um, the other character I have is, you, I know you must know who this is, Dagoth Ur, the villain from The Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind. Uh, not from, okay, from Morrowind. No, I've never actually played Morrowind, but I have heard of Dagoth Ur, yes. Uh, yeah, it's, everyone's making videos with his voice because he has a very dramatic voice and the AI uh, voice videos is very popular. Um, and I also, uh, he's essentially... Um, a he was servant to the sovereign, uh, who ended up going to war with some dwarves because they were trying to make a fake god using uh, a dead god's heart. He ended up uh, tapping to the power of that heart when he was supposed to be looking after it. Went mad, um, and uh, is trying to become a new sovereign by finishing the uh the dwarves god that they were building and then driving out all of the invaders from his uh, home country uh, imperial dogs um and then so there's that character and then there's griffith from the band of the hawk he is the uh oh. villain for berserk uh, it sounds like yeah. you know yeah no i i've read berserk for sure um not all the way through obviously um not that anyone can anymore i guess but uh you know i have definitely i'm aware of, i'm familiar with griffith uh, so of those three, since I don't have to describe who Griffith is, uh, which do you think, uh, if I if I did a bit about Griffith, actually, is probably, now that I go through, he's had the most, in terms of personal impact uh, on me as a villain. Um, but but what would you, are you interested in the, any, either, yeah, either of the other two? Uh, well, I would have to just have you kind of explain them to me because I'm, I'm not familiar with them myself. So it's um, hard for well, me to well, say. We'll stick with Griffith then, I think. I think as I've gone through them, uh, I think there's the most quality to talk about. There. Though I do love Judge Holden. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if you have a chance to read Blood Meridian, uh, he is enchanting, um, much in the way that the devil is enchanting uh, in a very dark way. Uh, but he's probably not a villain proper in the structure of the story, whereas Griffith def- definitely becomes the villain. Um, mm-hmm. But why... You know, if I were to analyze Griffith, Griffith, what I think made him a compelling villain is that for me in particular, so this is a bit of context, um, the at the point at which I had uh, watched slash read Berserk, uh, I was in my early 20s 
and it, it <laughs> coincided with a kind of um, uh, what the union might call an elevation of consciousness, which everything in union psychology is named horribly to make it hyper vulnerable to hijacking by uh, woo merchants and uh, wokeites, which I hate. But all he really meant by elevation of consciousness is that you become more self-conscious, you become more conscious of yourself and traits about yourself that you probably weren't paying attention to before. Um, mm -hmm. And so Griffith is really the embodiment of ambition, right? He, in a sense, becomes that kind of tyrannical villain that we mentioned before. And mm -hmm. uh, what, what enchanted me, though, was this idea of a dream. And, you, you know, you talked about having hope, right? So in the face of nihilism, being able to hold on to hope is, is, is and having the strength to hold on despite being battered by the, you know, black abyssal waves trying to push you under. Mm -hmm. uh, Griffith embodied the holding on to that no matter what, which is, again, uh, I, I like to have the saying, the tyrant can only squeeze, right? Like mm -hmm. that, and that, that's what leads them down their pathway to hell. Right. Um, but there's a particular scene in which Griffith becomes the villain that uh, that stuck with me permanently. And at the, um, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, at the eclipse, right where he he is sort of pressed to that point, and he now has to face really the decision. Right? Do you give up? Yeah. Or do you not give up? And of course, and by yeah. the way, here is the cost of giving up. It's not nothing. Right. Um, but also here's the cost of, <laughs> you know, uh, in the, so he has a cost in both directions. And it's what what do you want to pay, essentially? Because you're not going to get away with paying nothing. Yes, that scene shook me so badly. Um, mm -hmm. It both made me aware of my, it made me aware of my own ineptitude and distance from my own goals in life. And it also made me hyper aware of my goals, which there's not really a difference between being aware of, let's say, your ambition, your goals, your dreams, uh, I like to use the word dreams, and the distance uh, between you and it. Um, so that you can imagine, you know, let's say if uh, Gautama Siddhartha, if the Buddha is right, that uh, suffering is born from desire, to become aware mm -hmm. of one's desire and the distance simultaneously in that way, uh, you know, it introduces one to great existential suffering all at once. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I could identify with Griffiths, or in this case, uh, it makes sense that he's like the tyrannical villain as opposed to the chaotic villain because he's got that uh, dimension of relatability to him. You can see exactly why he made that decision. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, I mentioned that impacted me. Like, I think I went in. I, I'm quite open about this, but uh, I went into like a like suicidal depression for like years mm -hmm. after that. Uh, and you mentioned that he has to make uh, make a choice, right? Because I think part of his character arc, his villainous arc, that I think made, I don't want to say made it relatable, though it does do that, but that made it compelling is probably the right word, right? In the same way that mm -hmm. we care about verisimilitude, not 
realism, right? Uh, that made right. it um, compelling is the reality that like, okay, look, man, you've got two choices. Your choices are you can kill all your friends, mm -hmm. betray them, voluntarily embody this evil, and then you mm -hmm. get to go one step further. Or you don't do that. But every single person that died and suffered and was made miserable by your pursuit thus far, all of that and all everything that you suffered, right? Like, uh, yep. like personally, and like Griffith did some like, uh, you know, he uh, basically sold himself sexually to some like disgusting oh, yeah. pedophile noble, right? Like, yep. So there, there are some personal. There are a lot of personal sacrifices as well as sacrifices of others, like that. Uh, particularly the scene where you know he finds the little toy soldier in the road of corpses. Yep. Right. It's like uh, the realization that you, as a human being, do not get anywhere. Like there is no unbesmirched path. Right. That was part of the realization. So there's your choices. Right. 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 They're both and bad. That, and you have they're both which of the two. Yeah. Yes. And so. You know, um, that realizing that uh, it's a that is that is perhaps the reality of the decisions that we often have to make. Obviously, Griffith is more extreme, like he's literally confronted by like five demons or four demons rather. Um, mm -hmm. And he literally becomes a member of the God Hand, which are they're all evil devils. And um, so. So that's a little bit overblown, right? I mentioned it's, it's symbolism, but um, what really made for me not this isn't anywhere near the level of depth that you just went through with with uh, Stoker's Dracula, but it did affect me very deeply to realize that um, at many junctures in my life, and I think this is true for everyone, you or, you know you you're put you're you're given the same decision. And and may you know you have to choose between, like, do I? There's like there is no like uh, what is it? Uh, Jordan Peterson said this. There's no good place to stand in the middle of a massacre, right? Right. You're just trying to pick the best of the bad places. Yes, and um, that you know that really you know maybe that makes me a Griffith apologist. It definitely makes me a Griffith apologist, uh, sort of. <laughs> um, but but that I know in terms of villains uh, affected me much more than the protagonist guts. Like guts, I appreciated. I appreciate more and more as I uh, would say in life. But mm -hmm. at the outset, what compelled what compelled me was uh, was Griffith. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the fact? Was was the opposition to the the protagonist, uh, and in a weird way? So this is kind of odd, right? In a weird way, I was compelled to say yes to the opposition, and why is that weird? Well, we we talked about before what mm -hmm. evil really constitutes is anti-reality. It's the naysaying. It's saying no to being itself. Um, 
and and perhaps we could say that one form at the very least of very compelling villain uh you could have the multitude of archetypes put together that that's very difficult to do i'm very impressed i i mm-hmm. if i saw that anywhere i'd be extremely impressed that's why i want to read uh dracula but another way that you could write a very compelling villain is to write one that you have in a sense almost have to say yes to to be saying yes that reality should be right Mm-hmm. even though you might still condemn the evil that comes forward after it, right? It's almost like saying, well, uh, you could, this might be a little bit blasphemous, but like you might say there is no such thing as a garden God could have made that didn't have the serpent in it, right? Like that, like for there to have been a garden, for whatever reason that we don't understand, the serpent had to be there. Because otherwise what we're saying is that God was wrong for allowing the serpent to be in the garden. Well, there always had to be the choice, is my understanding. I, I could be wrong, but there always has to be the the choice. Otherwise, you're an automaton, right? Um, or you could, like, a pet, if you want to put it that way. Um, I don't know. That could Maybe I'm wrong about that. That's just my understanding. No, I, th- I think I think you're right, right? Like I think we're saying, in a sense, um, the same thing, right? Because for you to choose or to be able to choose, you have to have the choice. There has to be the temptation. There has to, like, if, you know, you have to accept that for that to be, for you to be as a human being uh, in this world, evil must exist. or And, and then to reject it's a the existence of evil is to reject being itself which is like the acceptance of an even greater evil right because then that that puts us on the path of denying all that is uh and then then we become villains ourselves (laughs) sure and we become Uh, unable to even to stop or recognize evil and then therefore evil flourishes all that fun stuff although actually one thing i wanted to say um just really quick because you you mentioned um you know buddhism also with respect to griffith I, I think, and you can let me know whether you think this makes sense. I think Griffith is actually sort of an anti-Buddha, in some way, right? He he does all the stuff of you know at this point deciding to you know cut all attachments, but except to the overarching ambition, like let's say the the main attachment. But he does it in a cold, calculating, you know, okay, you know, kind of sense. Um, and that's actually a concept I've kind of only recently become kind of familiar with. It might be a very small trope in anime because we came across another villain uh actually just last night that my friends and i were agreeing was sort of like that um so i don't anyway i don't know if you think that that's an appropriate way of, of viewing griffith or not no it is um that is t- it's very typical of, it, it very well might be describable as a trope in anime but i think that is a product of east asian culture um i actually mm-hmm. had a conversation with someone uh more than a month ago now but it was it relevant revelatory there we go to me about myself uh, i hadn't realized how much a lot of my um east asian influence philosophical influence changed my person especially as i've gotten older and, and gotten more consciously interested in it rather than it being kind of a product of things that i was around uh, and mm-hmm. that detachment is actually um it's part of the deep philosophical tradition like it doesn't really matter 
what tradition it is, right? If it's Taoism, um, you detach in the sense that you accept being, right? In Buddhism, um, you 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 do that in a way that is more renunciant. Um, though I'll argue that classical Buddhism never existed on its own. Like Buddhism is already always attached onto another religion. Like it was originally like the original Buddhists were also Hindus. Like you, right. and then when it went over to China, um, it got attached onto Taoism and then made its way over to Japan. And then the Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism jumped onto Shintoism as well. Like, so yep. that, that's maybe you're you're familiar with that but i would say that um there is detachment though um and again this might be the nietzschean influence i would say in terms of griffith griffith he was very detached cold and calculating except um i i think unconscious to griffith is exactly how much he valued um guts and actually guts is the other way around uh more into their particular characters but um I realized this at the scene with the fountain where Guts is at the bottom of the stairs and Griffith is telling Charlotte about uh, how, well, I don't really consider them my friends because I only consider, you know, my a friend to be an equal. At that mm -hmm. point, um, neither Guts and perhaps Griffith realize that Guts is already an equal in Griffith's mind. And I realized that because, right. you know, Griffith is like, or Guts is like, why don't you just order me to do it? And Gu Griffith doesn't answer the question. Right. And mm -hmm. the reason he doesn't answer the question is because it would make conscious the fact that like this is it's because you're about, you know, you'd say it's because you're my equal. That's why he says to him, like, do you think I'm a bad person? Mm -hmm. And the reason why he asked Guts that is because like he actually cares what Guts thinks about him. Um, right. So I don't know. That might be a bit of a, a bit of a ramble. There, there's a whole Nietzschean path I could go down, but we've we've gone on too long. Um <laughs> So I think, is there anything you want, particularly want to, to talk about um, before we wrap things up? Uh, not, I guess, for the podcast. Uh, no, I think. All right. It's just <laughs> been go enough. <laughs> no, no, I think two hours is pretty, is pretty good. I've actually had a lot of fun. Um, you know, oh, I didn't expect good. it. Yeah, I didn't expect we'd go this much into moral philosophy. Uh, but for those, for those of you listening who came here for writing, um, I actually think this is really important. Like, if you don't understand this, like if you don't understand the moral philosophy, you cannot embody it in your fiction. What do you think of that? Right. As like a as a no, send off I, statement. I think that's true, and uh, I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to writing, uh, and I think I've already stated this more or less. Because uh, there's different levels of writing, right? From, you know, pulp up to, you know, freaking super great classics and everything else. Um, it, it's, I would argue, it's never going to make your writing worse to try to look at the highest possible, you know, sort of thing it could be. Understanding it, it, it's the, the underlying principles to the best of your ability. Um, I mean, even pulp can probably be elevated by having some understanding of all the, the underlying, the, the real serious, deep I don't want to say components, but the deep purposes, let's say, of the different elements of narrative. Um, so if you're a writer and you're intimidated, like, that's okay to be intimidated, everyone is. Um, but it's not going to make you worse, I don't think. Unless you become a, you know, unless you don't know what you're talking about and you become pompous and you're like, oh, I, I, I have now, 
I can quote Nietzsche. Now I am qualified to talk about philosophy. Like, maybe don't be that person. Um, <laughs> but aside from that. I, I agree. I, in fact, I would go further. I'd say it will, it will make you better. Um, to, and, and, and also, don't be intimidated. What is it? Uh, Sunatomo said, I might have quoted this little podcast last time, but I'm going to do it again. Um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, do not suppose that you cannot attain what the masters attain. Uh, they were men, you are a man. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, you know, it's, or no, it's spiritless to assume that you can't. That's what he says. Yeah. To not attain. So basically, just don't, don't be intimidated. Just do it. Like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Nothing. All right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, before we go, uh, we will shill one more time. Uh, again, if you enjoy this podcast and you have a topic that you'd like to recommend, uh, get a hold of me via any avenue you know how. Easy way is on my website, wildlit.com slash contact. Um, also, go there if you maybe want to be on the podcast. While you're there, check out my editing service, the Wild Isle, Wild Isle Style Guide, uh, where I will help you write much better than I just pronounced my own service. And also while you're there, check out my novel, One Smoke Broken, weird fantasy fiction, American Western twist with kind of literary flair. Uh, also, I'm coming out with some short stories not too long after the recording of this podcast, hopefully within a month or two or three. Uh, depends when I can get all the uh, cover art together and such. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, you've seen a bit of, uh, I think, yeah, you saw a couple of uh, so. Um, also, uh, Amaya, go ahead and let everyone know about uh, your your novel, where they can get it, and uh, where they can you know keep up with your work and all that. Right. Uh, well, uh, my my novel it's available through most booksellers, um, and again, it can even be ordered from Barnes and Noble. Um, there's two different at least places where you can get the hardcover. So. Um, you know, Goodreads, iTunes, Amazon, so on. It's, it's called Dracula's Guest by Amaya Tenshi. The sequel, Dracula's Match, should be out early in June. I don't have the exact release date, but it should be early in. So, I look forward to that. Uh, it's a series where, you know, let's say the embodiment of modernity and encounters uh, the embodiment of a form of tradition, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But basically, uh, a, um, a Seattle hipster ends up teaming up with Vlad the Impaler for uh, fun adventures. <laughs> Dubiously fun adventures is perhaps the way to put that. I don't know if, if you can, if you agree with that or not, but. I, I do. I, I really, I did enjoy Dracula's Guest, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy reading Dracula's Match as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amaya, for coming on. Um, also, people go uh, Usagi Tenchi if you're looking for Amaya on social media. I know that she is on Minds. Um, you know, follow her work, uh, keep up with it. Definitely worthwhile. And this was uh, a really, really great conversation. So, uh, thank you all for listening, and I will see you all next time.